All right, we're recording. Welcome, children of the internet who listen to the show. I've got a, another very interesting guest, uh, Joshua Collins, also known as Invisible Mudos. <laughs> and uh, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, following your work as an independent journalist, freelancer, floating around South America, especially the Venezuela stuff. Uh, why don't you tell people why your name is Invisible Mudos? Um, uh, well, because Muros Invisibles was taken by Twitter somehow. But <laughs> the idea is invisible walls, right? So I right. I principally write about uh, immigration, although touch on a few other issues. And I'm really fascinated by the idea that there are these invisible walls that people have made. I mean, and yeah, that means the borders, which are invisible as well. But I also mean like culturally, mentally, like through language, like just the idea of I think that all cultures have these invisible walls around them that we've created. And so I think part of my goal in being interested in writing about immigration was to try to break those invisible walls down. Right. So when I was in Colombia last year, um, I don't know if you, I don't know if I put this on Twitter, if you know, I'm actually Venezuelan. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been growing up from, I've been watching the whole crisis from afar. Wow. I haven't gone, I haven't gone to Venezuela because um, of passport issues. If I go in, they won't let me leave with a Canadian passport. It's impossible to get a Venezuelan passport right now. Yeah. I've heard people try to pay from the outside and the government just ignores them even though they took their money. So, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of stories about that. And then even if you go there in person to do it, I mean, it's a matter of bribes. I've heard people have to pay like an additional one to $300 to make sure that they actually, they actually process it. Right. So yeah. I went to the Colombian border in 2017. Oh, okay. So I saw the physical wall, and I yeah. guess it's, uh, it's also an invisible wall because if you wanted to, you could just walk across. Sure. You were in Cucuta? Yeah, I went to Cucuta because I had a family I hadn't seen in years, and they came to visit me in Colombia, but because of the passport situation, I didn't dare to go uh, inside. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I lived, I, in, I, lived in, I lived in Colombia for about, I'm mean, sorry, Cucuta for about eight months, nine months, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of liked it there. It was, I don't know, as a, I'm a foreigner, I guess, now, so life's easy for me. Yeah. But um, um, how did you get interested in Venezuela? So is that where you started, like, your reporting career, or did you start anywhere else? Yeah, it started in Venezuela. So I, due to a complete accidental chain of events and a bad relationship, I ended up with an apartment in Cucuta in November of 2017. And the relationship didn't work out, but I stayed in Cucuta. And I was sort of a freelance writer before that, but I was not a journalist. Okay. And I just started getting really fascinated by the tide of people that were crossing the border and their stories. The whole area is super fascinating. And when I arrived, I honestly didn't know that much about Venezuela. I'd been in Colombia for a year and I, you know, I watched the news, but it was not really up to speed other than just like the big headline stories. But uh, I just got really fascinated and started pitching media sources. Um, at the time, nobody was really interested internationally. It was a big story in Colombia, but not really around the world. Um, then, of course, in January with the political crisis, uh, all these editors that have been ignoring me for months started picking up my stories. So it was kind of by accident. Were you surprised by the wave of migrants? Like, What was it like seeing that? When I first got there, I was amazed. I mean, like, I'd heard stories in Colombia, but to see it is a different thing. Um, I mean, they joke that the population in Cucuta doubles during the day because so many Venezuelans are either crossing or coming in to, to shop or to go to school or to work. 
So, I mean, something like 30,000 people cross the two bridges that are open every day into Kukatan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... And then I was amazed by the informal network that's set up between Kukata and Bogota. There's all of these either church-run or privately-run um, shelters, kitchens, like places for Venezuelans to sleep. There's so many crossings. They say it's like two, 300 a day that are walking to Bogota. And I just got so fascinated with those people's stories and the people who are working in, in the humanitarian end of things. I, I, mean, I saw a mini-documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's the biggest mass migration of people in South American history. And if it continues at this rate, it will surpass Syria as the biggest migration of humans since World War II. That's like unexpected in the Americas because we keep hearing about all the problems in the Middle East. Yeah, and right. Then you consider that Venezuela could be the Dubai of South America with all their oil and gold and all these natural resources and... Dubai is a fascinating example because they discovered their oil reserves right around the same time Venezuela did. And look how the two countries turned out. Right. Um, So how did you end up going into Venezuela? Well, I went in November when I arrived, but that was before the political Mm -hmm. crisis. Uh, Because I had a Colombian cedula and they don't, I mean, technically what I did was illegal because I was an American, but they don't really check. they They weren't checking then at least. Mm-hmm. So I went to Venezuela to San Antonio. It's like the town on the other side of the um, the bridge is the, the river, I guess, from Cucuta. Uh The second time I went to Venezuela was in Maicao, but I was arrested by Venezuelan intelligence there. I didn't realize, and I'm still not sure if I was in Venezuela. I thought that I was not, and I was waiting for my friend when I got detained. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so well, I thought it cut out. Did you cut? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it cut, out. it cut out. No, we're good. We're good. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you or tell the story about the. You just said it so casually, but you got kidnapped by Venezuelan intelligence. Like, I read that article and I was like, Jesus fuck, that would be the scariest thing ever because it's they're pretty. Much yeah, I was scared. Them. I was definitely scared. Um, yeah, I was working on a story for uh, Al Jazeera about gasoline smuggling, and that's why I was in my cow. And I was working with a Venezuelan journalist who I'd worked with before. Um, I'm not really sick of his name, but we'll call him Jose Rafael. And I was just waiting on the side. Whereas, like I said, the, the border is not marked super clearly in Maikau, but there are checkpoints on either side. So I was waiting about 100 meters away from the military or immigration checkpoint, better said, um, manned by the, the National Guard, the Venezuelan National Guard, when one of them approached me and detained me um to make a super long story shorter they were initially trying to extort us for ten thousand dollars or they were threatening to send me to caracas to a political prison uh my my partner jose rafael was a lot more worried than me because he was worried about being disappeared um i i don't know i've never lived in venezuela but according to him that is something that happens to the press there and he was rather terrified so he went back to well we, after some discussions of them explaining how serious the situation was to us, they even took Jose into a side room and threatened to torture us, him. I was never threatened with torture. They threatened to torture him if we couldn't come up with the money. Um, eventually, they agreed to let him go back to Colombia, supposedly to get the money. I was detained for about 12 hours 
by Seven, which are the Venezuelan secret police. They're the ones who prosecute perceived enemies of Maduro and the regime. Um, yeah, but it turned out in the end that Jose actually completely saved me because instead of trying to raise money, although I was losing my mind in Venezuela, not knowing what was going to happen, thinking that I was going to Caracas, he was actually learning Colombian media, the American embassy, uh, Colombian authorities, the Wahoo Nation, which is like the indigenous sort of semi-autonomous government in Guajira, which is where my cow is. And all of his media contacts in Venezuela, he called every editor I've ever worked with. Like he was going through my work that I have posted online and just contacting all the editors. And mm-hmm. after, you know, seven, eight hours, I found this all this out later. I didn't know, had no idea. But uh, apparently there were a lot of people making calls behind the scenes. And I think all that attention spooked the guys who were trying to extort me and they ended up letting me go after about 12 hours could you imagine of having a firestorm like that maybe trump invaded for you yeah i know that's so weird that's what my friend was joking about i was like oh my god (laughs) did it end up going into the news at all or did they it's really really unfortunate because um so because of all the attention that was called, the Venezuelan officials decided they were going to return the cameras. And they gave them to the Colombian police. Uh, I, I didn't mention that. When, when they released me, they kept my cameras supposedly as collateral for a $2,000 extortion by the end of it. They had come down in price quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And the Colombian police decided they were going to give a press conference where they were going to give me my cameras back. But at the, I didn't know that. I always just thought that I was just going to pick up my cameras. So when I showed up, there was like a press conference waiting. And I was like, guys, I can't... I, pulled the police aside. I was like, guys, I can't have the story in the news right now because Jose was worried about the security of his family, like his girlfriend, his coworkers in Venezuela, not to mention all the people that had been making calls behind the scenes. So especially so quickly after the events, we, I, I, I couldn't tell the whole story. I explained that to them and they understood. And it was kind of funny because they decided to make up a story then because they really wanted to have a press conference of them returning the cameras to the gringo reporter. So there is... A story out there. I'll send you a Twitter link to it afterwards. In El Geraldo, it's the uh, newspaper from Barranquilla, where right. it's like a picture of them returning my cameras, and they made up a story that I was robbed by indigenous people, which kind of is a bummer because the law enforcement in in Guajira was a huge part of helping us out. Like they were the ones who loaded Hala, that escorted us to the border afterwards. They were in- incredibly responsive and incredibly helpful, and it was kind of a shame that the indigenous people kind of got the short end of the stick on that story. I didn't find that out until a few days later. It, it was, it was, it, it was bothersome to me. The stereotype that the police decided to propagate for the story. Was this, uh, when was this? Um, I don't know, like three months ago. I see the, see the exact date. Oh, so it's pretty fresh then. You know, it'd be in, yeah. it was in June. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, if you go to, Josh's Twitter, you can find both the English and Spanish version of these stories. I read the Spanish version, and I assumed you just published it in Spanish for some reason. <laughs> <Then other people. laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a little nervous about that translation. I and mean, I can communicate totally fine about complex subjects in Spanish, but right professionally is another level. So please forgive any errors. Right. And now you're in Ecuador. I saw, I was following you on Twitter. All the the firestorm started in Ecuador, and I saw that you were like, "I'm flying to Quito with a gas mask." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I arrived. I what guess was, 
I got some when the when the protest started, I immediately started pitching Al Jazeera because I wanted to come here. Um, but I'm freelance; I don't have a full time position for them. So basically, yeah. I, I send them ideas, and then a day or two later, they get back to me. After some back and forth, they decided that they would let me do like a mini doc for their uh, website, like a three four minute film on the protests. And it was really impressive. Before I arrived, I'd heard that. It was all because of Venezuelan agents, and it was part of like this leftist socialist attempt to take over Latin America. That was that was the way that the, the Ecuadorian media was portraying it. But when I arrived, it seems like a rather different story. It is a very much an indigenous-led movement that you would probably consider leftist, but certainly had nothing to do with Venezuela or Cuba. I didn't hear a Venezuelan accent the entire time I was here. Um, and they ended up being victorious. They, they sort of bent the government to their will. Although we don't have the final details on a deal yet, it was a really impressive experience. The only problem was that they reached a peace accord three days after I arrived, before I'd finished the mini doc, and Al Jazeera decided not to put the story out. And I was like, oh, that hurts a little bit. But I was really glad to see peace in Ecuador. And when the indigenous people walked back to the park where the protests, they were very fierce, very violent protests, like some of the most violent protests I've ever seen. When they were entering the park that had been a battleground for 12 days, it was really beautiful because the citizens of Quito that supported their movement, which was not all of them, but I would say probably a thin majority, but thousands of people were there to like give them a hero's welcome as they came back into the city and sort of congratulate them and thank them for fighting against this law that was initially uh, sparked by opposition to the removal of gasoline subsidies in return for an IMF loan. So it was a, it was a really powerful experience, even though uh, financially it didn't work out that great. It was really, it was really beautiful. And I got some self-published material that I think is really cool. Yeah. I read a lot of it. It was really good. Um, Thanks. As a, as a former wannabe journalist, um, do you ever find that you'd be better off as a journalist, like independent versus if you were employed by Al Jazeera? Do you feel like, because I noticed in one of your articles, you wrote that uh, you didn't want an editor to go through it. Do you well, feel like it, an editor can inhibit you if you're an employee versus staying as a freelance contractor type deal? I would like to say that like journalism is always collaborative. I mean, except for self-published stuff, right? I mean, you go through an editor, you go through a copy editor. Usually when you're pitching the idea, the editor has a part in the way the story is going to be told. And I really believe that generally that makes the piece a lot stronger. Like it, it, sometimes I get fixated on an idea and an editor will say, well, well what if we looked at it like this? And, and usually they're right. They have a lot of experience uh, telling these stories, right? And we are storytellers at the end of the day. But Every once in a while, there's a story that's really personal to me, and I don't want that process. Um, and that's the stuff that I self-publish. The story about Venezuela was one of those. Right. I remember uh, I pretty much learned how to write much better than in university from Columbia Reports editor-in-chief Adrian Alcima. Shout out if okay. you're yeah, yeah, yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> But he grilled the shit out of me. Like he turned me into a much better writer because when you come out That's of university, great. you're writing just like these long metaphorical paragraphs that make no sense. And he's like, make this make sense. Do it again. Rewrite it. Yeah, I, I saw I saw you tweet about that a few times. I, I really could not agree more. The very – as a total greenhorn before I had any idea what I was doing, like my first piece that I got hired for, I submitted like 6,000 words. And the other was like, I'm not even going to read this. Like you need to get this down to 1,200 before I'll even take a look. So yeah, overwriting is definitely uh, a mistake that I made when I was starting out. That's for sure. 
And uh, are you still in Quito? Are you still trapped? I am in Quito. I'm trapped. I have been waiting for a a visa, my Colombian visa. I'm having problems with it right now. Um, I'm hoping it's just a matter of bureaucracy and dumb mistakes. Although, to be totally frank, I'm a tiny bit concerned that because of that stir with the Venezuelan uh, detainments, because Colombian mm-hmm. government is very aware of that. I'm a bit worried that they're kind of giving me uh, some problems over that. We'll see. <laughs> I um, I crossed the border from Ecuador to Colombia in 2018. Yeah. And I got a little bit annoyed at a border guard because they wouldn't accept. Uh, as a Canadian, you have to pay to go into Colombia. Uh, okay. And I lined up for hours. And when I got to the front of the line, they wouldn't accept my credit card, even though it said on the wall that you, you could take credit card or debit card or whatever. Oh, no. So, and I got annoyed at the guard, and he was like, you are banned from Colombia. As long as I'm here, you are not allowed to cross the border. Wow. So I'm traveling, I'm traveling with all these people. I was the last one to go through, and they're like, what the fuck, Frank? Yeah, right. What, what are you going to do now? My family was flying into Colombia from Venezuela and canada and i was like jesus christ i'm gonna be late i'm not gonna be able to see them i'm gonna have to go back to quito and i ended up getting through but oh you did okay how did you get through i ended up i ended up waiting for that guy's shift to to pass ah it was like five hours later and then i tried again and nobody said anything (laughs) (laughs) well i'm glad you got through that's great i've been i've been to that border a number of times Yes, I went right after New Year's. Okay, and there was just thousands of people. Sure, plus traveling. A lot of Venezuelan migrants, so it was just like yeah, on both sides going in and out was just packed. The last time I was there was the the two days before. I, I was there for three days to see what happened when they closed the border to Venezuelans without passports and visas, and it was the same. There was thousands and thousands and thousands of people all rushing to cross before the rules changed. But it was kind of exactly. ironic. Because I was coming from the Colombian side, and I took a cab from Ipiales, which is the closest town to the border, and the taxi driver dropped me off in Ecuador like by accident. And I got out of the taxi, and I was like, oh, shit, I'm in Ecuador. And it took me a good hour of explanation to the Colombian immigration officials. They're like, why don't you have an exit stamp? Like, you're an illegal alien in Ecuador. I was like, no, the taxi driver dropped me off. I promise, I promise. Eventually, they let me back in, but it was it's a very confusing, chaotic border. It, it seems kind right, of easy. Like, it seems kind of easy to just sort of walk across it too. There's not really much in the way of barriers. That's what I was gonna say because I remember just walking back and forth from Ecuador and Colombia. Yeah, and I was trapped. I would eat. I remember I exchanged money on Colombia side, even though I was still not allowed in. And <laughs> then I also ate on the Ecuadorian side. Just kept walking back and forth. Right. Walking around looking. The the border <laughs> so in. There's no like. I'm sorry. There's no physical wall there right. stopping you from going back and forth. Like if I wanted to, I could just catch a cab on the other side and nobody would really stop you. There's nobody watching really. No, but you wouldn't have an entry stamp and that could be a problem later. Right, exactly. But it's the same in my cow. That's how it got a little fishy about – I'm still not 100% sure whether I was in Venezuela or not when they detained me. It was the same kind of situation. There's no clear markation. Yeah. So we were just talking about how Vene- not Venezuela, South America is on fire. There's just there's protests in Bolivia, Chile. I even saw Uruguay yesterday. I saw it yesterday too. It blew my mind because for days I've been saying Uruguay is like the most chill 
country on the planet. But no, I guess they got the bug too, man. It's crazy. Argentina has their own economic problems. Are they dealing with inflation as well? Yeah. Um, Colombia is about to voted out. Colombia is about to have some issues too, although they're not protesting fiercely right now. There has been a couple strikes in the last two or three weeks, but the big things coming up are tax reform. Uh, elections are in five days, four days, excuse me. And the ongoing trial of Uribe, no matter how that turns out, people are going to be very upset. It's a very polarizing issue in Colombia. So I think we can expect, we can expect some, some flare-ups there as well. I know uh, Adriano Sema's covering the hell out of that right now. Mm-hmm. I haven't been reading much about it, but he does like a daily trial review on Alvaro Uribe. Yeah. Who, for people who don't know, he was a conservative president who cleaned up the country a bit, but is also connected to paramilitaries, fucking Pablo Escobar, and in those former days, corruption, right. silencing was- witnesses. Right. He was the mayor of Medellin, and this much is indisputable. There were a lot of innocent people that were killed by paramilitaries that were unofficially uh, allied with the government. What a lot of people in Colombia believe, and I'm not going to make an opinion statement on this publicly, a lot of people believe that he was involved in that, like the false positives case is what they call it. And, and he's been a very polarizing figure since then. Still there? Yeah, did I cut out? No, no, no. You just stopped talking, and I thought it. Cut. Yeah, I was just trying to give some background on the trial that's going on. So the, the trial that's going on right now is actually specifically about whether or not he silenced witnesses through both bribery and intimidation. Right, and uh, when is it set to end? Is it soon? I haven't been following it. I, I don't think there's a set date. I think that when the judicial review is content, they're going to announce a decision, and that might take a while. This trial has been going on for, I want to say, three years. Don't quote me completely on that, but I know a number of years. Um, and it's just finally gotten to court, and they're holding the court. It's a closed hearing. The public is, and the press are not allowed. They're only going to announce uh, a decision and some basic notes. So, But... As I said, because he's such a polarizing figure, whichever way this shakes out, people are going to be very upset. His supporters or his opposers will take to the streets. Do you think there's like a general reason why all these countries are protesting at the same time? Um, Do you think it's specific to each country? Obviously, there's a bit of that, but do you think... People in South America might be a bit fed up with uh, the way the countries have been run. What's your total sense on why South America's on fire? Yeah, maybe the world because a a bunch of other countries. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. I mean, 2019 is a crazy year. I mean, look at what's happening in the United States right now. You know, look what's happening in the Middle East right now. It's just been a really wild year with a lot of global protests. Hong Kong. Uh, right now, I want to say Jordan, Iraq. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert on the Middle East. It's not my beat. But there's a number of countries there that are in Iran that are in really fierce protests as well. As for Latin America specifically, Frank, that's a great question. I, I'm i not sure I can answer it with confidence. But uh, to take a guess, I think that there's been kind of a big wave of populism in the last three years, four years globally. And that has further polarized Latin America. Um, you hear a lot of conspiracy theories that it's it's Cuba and Venezuela trying to destabilize, you know, all of Latin. I, I don't believe that personally. Um, I also don't believe that it's called, it's the fault of the CIA. 
Although I'm sure both groups have people on the ground in those countries. I'm not trying to deny that. Um, but it seems like a reaction to, to populism. It seems like there's just been a series of wacky elections, huge scandals. And it's even happening in Chile and Uruguay, which are relatively economically and socially stable countries and have been for a while now. It's, it's fascinating. I don't know exactly what caused it. What do you think? Um, I think there's a general unrest from just how difficult it is to survive. Sure. Like, um, as a Canadian, I have I can come back to Canada and work any bullshit job. I've said this before. And within five or six months, I have enough money to travel the world for like half of the year. Yeah, it's true. Whereas, whereas I remember I would be sitting in these hostels. And since I speak fluent Spanish, I would talk to the housekeepers, the people who yeah, run yeah. the hostels. And they would tell me things like, I can't even afford to leave my town. I've never traveled across Colombia. I see all you foreigners who are traveling for a year straight, and I can never imagine that. Um, an iPhone costs the same. Computers cost the same. If you go to an H&M, McDonald's, everything costs the same. But yeah. people's salaries are like, what, $250 a month? Right. You can put a roof over your head with that. You can eat. But yeah. I mean, it's in, very in hard to live a global life. Right. In Colombia, the, the monthly minimum wage is $250, I think, right? 260 something like that. Mm -hmm. And they say something like 70% of the country works for that wage. It's There's definitely not as much economic opportunity, in, in certainly in Colombia, um, but most of Latin America. And we're, right. as North Americans, we're incredibly lucky in that respect. That's something I think a lot about. Yeah, like it wouldn't surprise me if more of these populist movements start, the drum beat starts pounding louder and louder as people i don't know maybe they get fed up a bit south america has developed but a lot of people are left behind there's the income inequality there is way more intense yeah the income inequality is is a huge issue it's a huge issue um i'm not an expert on the stats outside of colombia but in colombia uh something i don't remember the exact stats but this is pretty close something like 200 families own 80 percent of the resources and land in colombia they were like old families from you know the Spaniards when colonization was going on, and their level of wealth is ridiculous. I mean, you know Colombia pretty well. You go to the rich neighborhoods in Bogota or Medellin, and like I lived in New York for fifteen years. Yeah, I saw a lot of really wealthy people in New York, but the rich people in Colombia are super rich, and they kind of run the country right now. And I can see why people get sick of that. Yeah. What about, um, I wanted to ask you about tankies. What does that term mean? Uh, yeah. Let me preface by saying like, so when I arrived in Columbia two years ago, I would probably have been considered on an American spectrum of politics, like very far left. Like I went to Iraq war protests when I was a kid, uh, really not a fan of American intervention abroad, understand the history of horrific coups and exploitation that America has in South America. So that, that was my entering the situation. Um, but tankies is a term that is originally from Europe when the, there was a split in leftist thought in the 60s. So as the Soviet Union got going and, and Mao's revolution was happening in China, a lot of leftists started to be uh, disenchanted by the prison camps, the mass deaths, the uh, public executions. And so a lot of leftists in Europe started to denounce Stalinism and Maoism. 
Um, so what a tanky is originally is there was a revolution in Hungary in, I don't remember the exact year, but early 60s, uh, late 50s maybe. And the Soviet Union decided they were going to attack this student protest and put it down violently. And those people that condoned that in Europe, people that were Stalinists, they were behind these ideas. They were okay with the death camps. They were okay with gulags. And they were okay with them sending tanks to Hungary. Ended up being called tankies. And that's like a term that has sort of applied to people that are um, irrationally hyper left, like to the points where they're willing to condone extreme state violence, uh, as long as they agree with the political affiliation of the country responsible. And there's a lot of them that like Venezuela. Um, so I, I, I spend a lot of time getting right, yelled at by those people. There's a online. bunch of them in Vancouver, dude. Yeah. There's a bunch here in yeah. Vancouver. My mom really? ran into them once and started yelling at them. And um, really? we're like by no means rich here. We're like barely making it in Canada. Right. Or we're like, okay, right. but we're not like those rich Venezuelans who are living abroad and whatever. And sure. these people, <laughs> I don't know. These, you see a lot of Venezuelans here just screaming at these people. And they're like, why don't you actually go live in Venezuela? Why are you living in Canada that... Why don't you go support yeah. your fucking regime and all this crap? And to be honest, I don't even know what to believe yeah. anymore. I, I I read both sides of what's happening. I used to read a lot of Venezuela analysis, which is another hyper left. And then I read a lot of Caracas yeah, Chronicles. I'm, I'm very with the yeah. I like to read both to see. And sometimes. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely try to stay informed by both sides. I think that's important. Um, am I connection going out? I think we're good. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would I would probably call myself a critic of Maduro, though, just because after everything I've seen living on the border, I was there on February 23rd in Cucuta, and they tried to push the aid in. I saw I saw teenagers shot with real bullets. Um, after all the stories I have heard interviewing people who went to political prisons and endured torture, uh, after interviewing hundreds of immigrants who say that the the food distribution program, which they call the CLAP program, is denied to people who don't vote for Maduro. I've had people swear to me that they, the ballots are not really secret and that the colectivos and FICE visit uh, retribution on people who are trying to organize against the government. And, you know, like, hear, this, hear those stories five, six, seven times, and maybe they're rumors, but I started to hear those stories dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And... A lot of those stories never make it out of Venezuela because they don't have a free press. So I would I would definitely call myself a critic of that government. And it's frustrating for me to be lectured by American leftists who don't speak Spanish, who've never been to South America, but are convinced that Stalin was awesome. And sometimes I should probably keep my mouth shut, but it's hard after everything I've seen and everyone I've talked to. What's your general sense of what's going to happen right now. I heard Guaido's about to call people back onto the streets. Yeah. I also heard his popularity is down by a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but it was, it was over 20%. It's gone down 20% since February. So quite a bit. I don't expect to see very big mobilizations of, of his next protests. I I think a lot of Venezuelans have become disenfranchised with his, his attempts. Right. Cause even his, uh, his allies were caught embezzling money in Cucuta, spending it, spending them on strippers and hotels. Apparently, that's right. So there was a 
There were some deserters on February 23rd. The idea was that the U.S. government thought that the, which is a horribly, horribly terrible idea. They thought that there would be mass desertions from the military. There, I don't know the exact number, but there was something like 40 desertions or something. And the deal was that those guys were supposed to be taken care of by uh, money that had been uh, given to Guaido by the international community. But some of his like sub-lieutenants, instead of using that to support and pay the bills of the deserters, they, well, this is the part that's not clear. The, the money definitely disappeared. And there are some credible reports that they used it to go like blow coke and bordels in Bogota, which is pretty disenfranchising. Mm-hmm. So um, when you were at the border and you were inside of Venezuela, what's like the general sentiment? Is it, are people just like fed up with both sides? And I didn't get very, so- I didn't get very far into Venezuela. I've only been to the, um, a few towns that are near the border, but uh, from talking to Venezuelans and granted, I talked to a subset of people that are, are probably not going to be government supporters because they're fleeing. Right. Um, I, I have talked with a lot of people though, who are Chavistas who don't have faith in Maduro People who voted for Chavez, who helped organize all that political action that was happening in the early 2000s, they totally believed in those ideals of socialism and Chavismo. But uh, they, they think that Maduro has to go. He's a thief. That the country is based more on a system of corruption than anything else. So, like I said, I'm not talking to the people that are making money off the regime that want to stay in Caracas or Valencia, Valencia where, where life is more or less normal except for shortages um i've talked to a lot of people from my and and marida though where you have three to four hours of electricity a day the hospitals don't work women are terrified to give birth there because not only are there not sufficient amounts of medicine but there aren't sufficient amount of disinfectants and secondary infections are a huge problem in those hospitals that was a big thing in kugata a lot of women flee the country to have their kid for a couple of reasons like they want their child to have Colombian citizenship, which is legal now under Colombian law uh, intentionally, or they were just terrified that they would die in a hospital, in, in particularly in the West. Because in the West of Venezuela, there, there, there's a little law. It's land is controlled by ELN, FARC, which are leftist guerrilla groups originally from Colombia, as well as the Colectivos, local gangs, uh, Paracos from Colombia. The border is like this little mini criminal shadow war. It's something that doesn't get a lot of media attention. They're all fighting over smuggling. It's yeah, it's, pretty, smart, yeah, yeah, it's gasoline pretty good. routes. Yeah, gasoline, cocaine, food, medicine, like you name it. Because yeah, in Venezuela they need food, they need medicine. Um, in in Colombia the gasoline can be sold for a lot more, and the cocaine is used to smuggle out through Venezuela. The two main ports for uh, cocaine smuggling in Colombia are Maicao and Buenaventura. Buenaventura is on the ocean and Maicao is on the land frontier with Venezuela. Those are the two main smuggling routes for cocaine to get it out of Colombia, which is the biggest producer in the world. And all of that creates a ton of instability on the border. And this political crisis has just made it a lot worse, which was really sad to see. So we've noticed how people in Chile in um where else was it where in ecuador started protesting once the cost of very essential things like gasoline or transport go up um has venice i thought i read a few months ago that venezuela was about to do something with their own oil subsidies are they still providing liters of oil for like five cents or less is that still in place because i even saw they had their own lines 
to buy right. gas. So as of as of three months ago, um, the gasoline smuggling from Venezuela to Colombia had dropped drastically. It still happens, but it was such a big drastic drop that um, three months ago, when I was working on that story, when I got arrested, actually. Kukatar ran out of gasoline because they were so dependent upon the illegal gasoline being smuggled in from Venezuela that when their oil production in Venezuela has dropped, right now, Colombia produces more oil than Venezuela, and they have less than 1% reserves. Uh, so, I mean, as this economic collapse gets worse and worse, people in the western part of the country, and Maracaibo is a big city there on, on the western frontier near Maikau, um, there's huge lines to get gasoline. So yeah, there are still criminals smuggling it or the army smuggles it more efficiently into Colombia. The, the numbers have dropped radically. So um, the, there isn't an official end of subsidies in Venezuela, but there are practical ends to subsidies because some of the lines in Maricaba to get Maricaba to get gasoline, it's like you, you park your car there and you, you live in your car for two days or you can fill it up. And there's a limit on how much how many liters you can take as well. So it's like the gasoline is still subsidized, but you kind of have to pay for your, with your time or bribe the guys to avoid those lines. Right. And Maracaibo is where all the oil fields are, which is fucking ironic. Exactly. You can't buy gas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is very ironic, right? Well, I mean, it's ironic that they have the largest petroleum reserves in the world. And this is what's happening in that country. It's crazy. I mean, a lot of the, the, the more in this year, since since 2019, this this collapse has been exacerbated a lot by U.S. sanctions um, and oil being one of the biggest, hardest hit sectors, because up until very, very recently, the U.S. were the only refineries equipped to process this really heavy crude that they have. It's it's one of the heavier crudes in the world. It's difficult to refine. Um, so and the U.S. used to buy 90 percent of Venezuelan oil. So when that stopped this year in uh, March of 2019, Venezuelans been struggling to find other clients for their oil, struggling to find uh, refineries that can process it. Um, I read today now that uh, Russia is stepping up some of that and they're now buying, the, I don't remember the exact number, but a huge majority of the oil that Venezuela is still producing. Um, so they might be able to climb back a little bit from some of this damage through those new relationships, but we'll see. I don't know if this is in your ballpark, but uh, did you talk to any migrants about how they use uh, crypto, Bitcoin and other coins, Dash? To yeah, get I'm, really the border? In, I'm really interested in this story. I've, I've been trying to come up with a really specific pitch and I'm not going to get too into it um, on a podcast, but the, the, the subject fascinates me. Um, a lot of people use crypto when they're fleeing the country. It's uh, They'll put all of their money into some kind of crypto, whatever it is, and cash it out when they arrive in Cucuta because the, the, the journey, the road journey to get out of Venezuela is really dangerous. Like, gangs will set up roadblocks and stop buses, rob everyone on the bus. Um, during a lot of the immigration checkpoints along the way, soldiers will board the bus and just basically demand bribes or not let you continue. So it's it it's useful to have a little bit of cash to give them and to eat, but you don't want to be carrying a lot of cash because you're in a very vulnerable position. So a lot of people will just put their whole life savings in crypto for you know the three day journey, four day journey, whatever it is, while they take a bus to Colombia and just cash it all out in Colombia. 
Um, up until the recent power outages of this year, Colombia, I'm sorry, Venezuela had the second highest number of crypto transactions behind the United States in the world, which is crazy for a country of 32 million people, right? Because the U.S. has, what, 100 million or something? So it's, there's definitely a really big crypto market there. A lot of it's opaque, obviously. It's hard to track. I'm really interested in that subject. What, what have you heard about that lately? Well, I'm interested on two sides. Obviously, what we just talked about, how migrants can use uh, crypto to keep their funds safe or to send, uh, for me to send remittances home. That's a huge thing too, yeah. Stuff like that. On the other side, it seems like Maduro is about to go crypto when he... <clears throat> when he said he was going to use uh what do you what was he going to call it this the petro. It, it failed the petro yeah and then on top of that now he's saying that Venezuela's central bank might buy bitcoin which yep, is I've heard that which is interesting large. yeah so it's like I'm interested to see I just did a podcast with a bitcoiner in Vancouver last week or two oh, okay and he seemed to think that uh it's going to be one of these uh Evil, evil countries or evil governments that's going to adopt Bitcoin first because all these other Western countries are, you know, they're in a fiat system controlled by central bankers and regular sure. bankers and governments or whatever. So a country like this, like Venezuela, would be almost like the perfect country to adopt Bitcoin. Maybe not to use it as their currency, but you put it in the reserves and use it sure. as a, a store of value. So it's kind of interesting to see how the people can use it to get away from the government to get away from theft and all these criminals. And then whereas a government itself could adopt it to get around sanctions and their political problems. I I have not heard that idea before, but that makes a lot of sense to me. That's really fascinating. I mean, I don't know if it'll happen or not, but that sounds like it could be a very, a very wild economic experiment in the modern world. That's insanely crazy. The thing that strikes me as interesting about that scenario, as well as just crypto in general, though, is that Venezuela has has tried to put all these taxes on remittances, right? And they even facilitate Bitcoin now trades to send the remittances, but they also charge taxes on that. But it's a doomed idea because you can't stop. Bitcoin transactions or any cryptocurrency transactions, all you need are people on the ground willing to make the trades and there's a way to get around those laws, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? The same tool that allows the regime to get around uh, sanctions supposedly through crypto, if that's possible. I'm not an expert on that, but it sounds like it would be possible to me. But that same economic freedom allows the people to avoid being taxed by the, the government. It's super fascinating to see such a widespread application of this technology. Right. Because uh, Venezuela was, uh, like you said, they had the highest uh, local Bitcoin transactions. So that's peer-to-peer people exchanging Bitcoin peer-to-peer versus... Right. Um, yeah, I did read that Venezuela was making... They were going to release their own crypto wallet. <laughs> I don't know how the fuck you would trust that. No, hell no. Are you, talking, are you talking about the Petro? Yeah, not no. even with the Petro. I read uh, that they were going to release a wallet so you could hold your Bitcoin oh and all no, these other. Oh no! Thank you. No. <laughs> yeah, like you're going to give the like you're going to give the government your private keys to all these. No, things. that's a bad country to do that with. No, don't do that. Don't, if anyone's thinking about doing that and listening, do not do it. That's a horrible idea. <laughs> 
Uh, where are you headed? Are you headed back to Colombia next? Or are you gonna go yeah, to I'm hoping that I can work out this visa in the next few days. I have an apartment in Bogota. Um, like I said, this trip was really inspirational. I learned a lot. I actually had a really fascinating conversation with a reporter from Telesur yesterday. Here, that was just really oh yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, it was really eye opening. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say his name because he wasn't he wasn't really speaking on the record. I don't want to go into too many details, but it was interesting to hear his perspective. Um, he has worked in Ukraine, uh, he's worked in Russia, and now he's in Ecuador. He's been here for about two years. And without without violating his, his confidence, I think I could probably safely say that he's really frustrated with some of the decisions that are being made on uh, the top management level, which is the Venezuelan government, basically, because the Venezuelan government is who finances Telesur. Um, it's a collaboration between Venezuela, uh, Bolivia and Ecuador, although the financing all comes from the Maduro government. And it, it was a really fascinating to meet someone from a organization that I kind of maybe had a cartoon evil villain perspective of, right? Just, you know, from reading these wild takes they're always putting out. But it was interesting to talk to one of the reporters because, I mean, this guy seems like he has been in a lot of places and seems to be trying to do good work. But he feels like a lot of the editorial decisions are just like literally because they're made by the Venezuelan government, it makes it hard for the reporters on the ground to do their job. And that was a really fascinating conversation to sit down and have a beer and realize that I have a lot of respect for like what this guy's doing with his life. And he works for Telesur, which up until recently, like I had kind of this evil empire idea in my head, right? It was neat. Right. Um, that reminds yeah. me of... Uh... That reminds me of Russia Today, RT. Like, they do a lot of good work, but then people automatically shit-talk them for being associated with Russia, and you're a Russian asset, but you got, like, Larry King doing shows for them. You got a, a bunch of famous former journalists for, like, CNN and all these other big broadcasters who are on RT. Then they do a lot of on-the-ground work that's really good. Yeah, but, I, would, I would say the same thing. There's, about always this, there's always this stigma at the top from the editors and the owners yeah, and, and I would say that the same critique of Telesur could be applied to RT. I mean, it's indisputable that both organizations have literally lied publicly a lot. <laughs> like, it's just indisputable. But that's not to say that everyone associated with those companies is a Russian or a Venezuelan asset. You're right. I agree with that completely. Oh, this just brought a question to mind that I've been thinking of when I've talked to other journalists. Like, um, what's your sense of the profession right now? Like, do you think... As a freelancer, you can pull it. You can pull off living as a freelancer, making whatever you get paid per article. Or do you think eventually every journalist should aspire to be an employee and get the salary that ensures they're safe? Like, do you think it's if I wanted to go back to South America right now and try it out as a freelancer, is it possible for me to put a roof over my head and eat? Well, I mean, you gotta understand. Like, I'm, I'm living in a country where, like, as we talked about earlier, the minimum wage is two hundred and fifty dollars a month, and you know, you can make more than that with one article. So, right. as as far as surviving, yeah, I think that be because of the um, the advantage that I have, just as as being you know a North American or an American specifically from the U.S., it's like being paid in, in U.S. dollars for my work goes a lot further here. So. What I'm doing, there's absolutely no way I could survive in Europe or the United States or most of Asia, anywhere with kind of like a higher cost of living. Um, and I'm able to survive here 
because of that difference. And it's something that I'm very aware of. And sometimes it makes me a little ashamed, right? Because I know people, I, mean, I work very hard. I, I work easily 40 hours a week. But I know some people in Colombia that are very, they're professionals. They have jobs working for companies, banks or oil companies or what have you. And I make more than them being a journalist, which is unheard of, right? But it's just because of the Colombian economy and the Colombian peso. So to answer your question, yes, you could definitely survive as a freelancer. But as I'm sure you're aware, it's feast or famine. So sometimes I have so much work, I just don't have a life for three, four weeks. And sometimes I'm really stressed out because I have no work at all, which happens to be the case for, at this very moment. But yeah, you could survive for sure. Um, you just have to be willing to accept a lot of rejection and realize that you're not going to make a ton of money. Uh, I would love to have uh, here's a, a permanent job with an, an organization that I respected. I have a couple of dream choices. I'd love to work for Insight Crime. I love their coverage. It's fantastic. They do such oh, I've seen them hire, dude. They hire like periodically. Yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I, would, I would love to do that. I'd love to be an AP or a writer's stringer. Like That would be fun. Uh, oh, yeah. That's a dream right there. Yeah, right. I've read a lot of books by former AP writers and – Reuters and you're just like damn they're yeah. out in like Africa and all these random countries reporting and that's like that's a dream right there. But the thing about journalism in in the modern world is that your your competition is global now. Like AP is just as likely to hire someone from Africa. But that wasn't the case 40 years ago, right? Like the New York Times would hire you and and basically pay you to live in Colombia or whatever they wanted a foreign correspondence. But now your your competition is global. So those jobs are harder to get. But yes, I would love to have one. I I don't want to say it will never happen. Um, it's not something I'm counting on. Let's just say that. Right. Oh, I just had a question and it slipped my mind. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't say that out loud. I should be a prepared interviewer. <laughs> uh, it's okay. You can edit it. <laughs> uh, God, I forget completely. Maybe I'll are, cut this Are you considering out. doing some freelance journalism when you come back? Yeah, I've been... Uh, I'm not in journalism right now, but I'm working as a contractor, so I know your whole feast and famine thing. Right, this right. Isn't like this is like in construction, building things in Canada. Sure. Uh, that's my day job, but I, I know how to manage my money really well. So I've thought about it. Like I have a portfolio. Okay. Um, I think it's just about the last time I was in Colombia, I left because I was about to run out of money. Gotcha. And I, kind of chickened out. But I was writing for Columbia Reports for three months, and okay. I loved it. Especially yeah, I like, when I, I like got, those guys. I liked when I, I especially enjoyed the feeling of going out and interviewing people and then putting a piece together. Like uh, writing general news that I'm not involved with, that was kind of interesting, but uh, I don't like just reading the internet all day and trying to write a story. Sure, yeah. that's Obviously, I'm not the real journalist is the one who goes out and comes to his own conclusions from talking to people. Yeah, I agree. And if you're looking for freelance freelance work, I mean, no. oh, I remember my question now. Thank oh, yeah. you. And it has, it has exactly to do with what you just said. Um, is there a master list of editors out there, like where I could just? I, it'd be so fun to compile a list of sources of uh, publications to write for. Yeah, that was my. <laughs> there are a lot. Um, I've got a lot of resource resources on that. It's kind of hard to answer in. A podcast it, it might be easier for me to send you some links but uh, right. when you post this I'll, I'll post a few articles and databases that i have found over my time here um make a real quick succinct answer or try to uh i send 
I try to send about 10 pitches every week. I write them on Sunday, I send them on uh, Tuesday. Um, just a superstition. I think that on Monday, editors are busy, uh, like planning their week, attending meetings. Um, it's important that you find the editor by name. Like any attempt to submit to, like, you know, foreign desk at New York Times, no one's going to ever read that article. You need to find the person and get the message to them specifically. Um, there are a lot of ways to do that. I don't really have time to explain about that. But I guess the biggest lesson I've taken away is that a no is not necessarily a bad thing. Because if they s took the time to respond to your pitch and they're turning you down, that, that means that they found your pitch professional. Because if they didn't, they would just ignore you. And every job that I have, that I have every editor that I have worked with said no to me multiple times before they finally started accepting pitches for me. And... So that would be my biggest piece of advice to anyone who's thinking about starting to try to pitch stories is, is realize that uh, being ignored is going to happen and, and that no's are actually not the worst news because it means that your pitch was good enough that they want you to keep sending more. Right, yeah, because I just uh, – I interviewed another journalist, uh, Chris Arnold, who's uh, he's a journalist in the U.S., but he grew up in Brazil – I mean – he grew up in the U.S., but he's Brazilian, and then he went back. He got adopted into the U.S. Okay, went back. You know, wrote a really amazing book. I did a podcast with him, and I was gonna ask him, like, because he told me it took him about ten years to fucking make it as a freelancer and to finally be able to almost rely on his uh, actual writing work versus working a day job or working something else to to stay alive. Sure. So I mean, you know. I don't know. I, I'm barely making it. <laughs> we'll yeah, that seems that. to be the general trend in most like creative, non-corporate, yeah, yeah. even in like film. I have a few friends in film in Vancouver, and they're like, "I have to work on films I don't like just to keep keep the lights on, and then make a film on the side that I'm actually proud of." So yeah, I mean, I'm gonna when I get back the to the modern trade-off. It is when I get back to Colombia and uh, back to Bogota. I'm gonna probably have to end up writing some business stories. Which is great and um, is an important part of what drives the world. Economics is a huge part of that, obviously. But it's not something I'm real passionate about. You won't see me bragging about it a lot on Twitter. So I understand that mentality, right? We all have to work. Yes. And it keeps you sane, actually. Like, if you try to just be a... F I found a bit when I was trying to make it in South America, if I stayed at home too much and I wasn't actually going out to work on something or just doing anything like if you just sit on the internet all day and try to fucking write it kind of blows your mind so it's it's almost nice to have a side job too or sure. something else to do yeah absolutely it's like, a random random rent yeah no I, I totally agree and like you were saying about going out and putting together pieces for columbia reports like even if i'm not super passionate about a business story that i'm working on for somebody in bogota it's still interesting i still end up learning and it's good practice you know bang out 1200 words um, professional level on a, on a subject that maybe I didn't know much about before I started investigating it. And I do like that aspect of it. It's interesting. Although sometimes it's not incredibly rewarding. Uh, there's no adventure stories when you're writing about uh, corporate stuff in Bogota. Do you understand? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so are you going to be in Colombia for the foreseeable future? Assuming I can get this visa worked out. Um, it seems like a good base. Uh, it's it's not really centrally located for South America, but it's close to a lot of countries where a lot is happening. And 
there's a lot happening within Colombia right now. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of these latest problems with the implementation of the, the civil war, the peace. Um, that's going to be a big uh, Yeah. That's yeah be- what's happening with that right now? Um, are, is the FARC rearming? This is the guerrilla group that uh, was at war with the government for years. Right. So it's, it's before we kind of talk about that, I, I feel like it's important to make a distinction, right? So FARC, the FARC was the guerrilla group that was at a 60-year civil war. Um, they were a communist group against uh, very conservative landowners, like the wealthy upper class in Colombia. And the peace accord is um, two years old, a little bit over that. And it is fragile because when FARC joined the government, they were they were pardoned for any crimes they committed. And in the last uh, year and a half since Duque has been president, he's the conservative president of Colombia right now. Ivan Duque, um, he ran on dismantling parts of this deal. Uh, he wants to get rid of the immunity for ex-FARC leaders. Um, there's also been a really an increment in the amount of ex-FARC soldiers who were promised they would be safe if they rejoined the government. Some of those are, are private grudge killings. Some of them are the Colombian paramilitaries who were also a part of the war and they judicially assassinate people that were their enemies during the war. So because of that, three of the big leaders, two of which were convicted drug dealers, by the way, that should be made clear as well, split off, threatened to go back to Venezuela and start the war again. But it's, I don't, that's where the terminology gets strange because 90% of the fighters are still with the peace process and they call themselves FARC. It's a political party now that's part of the government. But there are also dissident forces that never were part of the peace agreement that operate throughout the country, through Buenaventura, in the south, in the Amazonia, and on the Venezuelan border specifically. And they're also called FARC. So it gets kind of confusing. We have like a terminology problem. Do you understand? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yes, FARC is a war with the government. Right, right. ELN was never part of the, the peace deal. They've always been a lot more extreme. They're a very, very interesting group. What about uh, what's happening in Peru right now? The president. Um, uh, I'm not oh, super. This is, this is interesting, actually. I sort of, I swear, I read the vice president declared themselves president, kind of like Guaido in Venezuela declared himself president. And yeah, there was a crisis two... of who was presidents. Yeah, there were two, and also yeah. the guy who actually, the guy who theoretically actually is the president threatened to dissolve their version of parliament or Congress, the, the Congressional Assembly. So uh, Peru hasn't caught on fire. They seem to be handling this this constitutional crisis really well. But uh, yeah, it's a mess there. I was in Lima two years ago when the president threatened to uh, dissolve Congress. And man, that was a funny story. I don't remember his name, but it was like, it reminded me just to talk about how, how corruption in Latin America can be so absurd it was like this high school scheme. The president had this idea that he was going to tax imported liquor at 100%, this outrageous rate. And he was going to use the money to pay for schools. And everybody was like, well, that seems like a good idea. We can we can do that. Like, I, you know, we have Peruvian liquor. I mean, obviously, they have a lot of, a lot of stuff like Pisco and stuff like that. They're like, we can pay more for whiskey. This sounds like – so the referendum passed, right? The, the public said it was okay. But it turned out the president had been hoarding like millions and millions of bottles of foreign liquor in these warehouses. And he was like poised to make like hundreds of millions of dollars off of this um, this law that he was about to pass. And so he threatened to, 
disbar Congress when they started investigating him for corruption. And I just remember the attitude of the people in Lima at the time were like, yeah, politicians, you know, what are you going to do? And they kind of like <laughs> went on with their day, right? Like they seem to be pretty good at handling constitutional crises in general. I mean, the last three presidents have all gone to jail. It's, it's bad. It's <laughs> crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> What about uh, Bolivia with, uh, is it Evo Morales? He, how many terms has he served? This will and, be his fourth uh, What happened with the election? This, okay, so uh, when he finished his third term, which was up until very recently, the, the constitutional limit for the amount of time a president can be president. He's, okay, he's a really popular leader. And like, I, I think that he's probably done a pretty good job in Bolivia. Like he has become this sort of like, really respected indigenous figure. And even the people on the right sort of grudgingly respect him. You don't see him demonized the way that people talk about Maduro, right? Um, so I think, you know, he's, he's a very popular leader and then he wanted to be president for a fourth time. So he tried to get a referendum passed and it failed. The people said they didn't want that. But he pushed it through the courts anyway and ran, which gave me a little bit of pause. It seemed like he could have kind of stepped down and been a really respected elder statesman, a sort of like peacemaker, like a Nelson Mandela kind of figure, right? But instead he decided he was going to run for a fourth term, which, you know, that gives me a little bit of pause. Anytime that you have a society built around a personality rather than a system, it makes me a little nervous. Uh, but the problem with the elections was that there's been widespread accusations. Uh, we haven't seen verifiable proof, but there's a lot of really troubling uh, social media videos circulating. The OAS, our election monitors here in South America, they are calling for um, second round because they're concerned that there was too many um, irregularities in the election. So now Bolivia is on fire because the opposition supporters are up in arms about this supposed fraud that happened. I don't know whether a fraud really happened or not, but the situation seems pretty troubling. And why is Chile on fire? We're going down the west coast of South America. Uh, no, I don't understand First, why Chile's on fire. They raised the metro fare, which caused a student protest. And that just seemed to have spiraled into just massive discontent with the government, right? Because there's not a set of demands. The The president already rescinded the metro uh, height like, what, like three or four days ago. But protests continue to grow. And it just seems like you were saying maybe – it's more of like a disenfranchisement with how difficult it is to survive economically in general, because Chile economically is, has been for the last like 30 years, relatively stable since, since the end of Pinochet. Right. And that was the last time that there were protests this big was to get rid of him. So it's, this is like really uncommon for Chile. I, I have a lot of curiosity about why I'd love to go talk to, to some of those people. Have you had a chance to talk with many Chileans about why they're still uh -huh. Anecdotically, um, I remember I had a friend who was half Chilean, half American, I believe. And she, she said she was working for a corporation there. And she said the hours were insane. She barely got paid compared to what she got in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that she couldn't live there. After living in the U.S., she's like, I could never live there. Really? And then on top of that, um, what was I going to say? There was somebody else I met. Oh, I met another girl who got to travel across the world for months but she had to save every penny, she said, for like a decade. And she got to do this round-the-world trip. And then she's like, when I go back, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Yeah, wow. Like, this, this like, 
for me to take that kind of trip, I could do it. I could come back to Canada and grind for like six months. Right. Pull it off. Yeah, totally. And then there's people that have to just work and work and work and work. And it's just hard. to. So I just think in general in South America, it's just the, it's just a hard life down there. So there's a, when it, whenever I traveled across South America, I would get asked in every country, it would be, Frank, how do I go to Canada? How do I get there? How do right. I get a visa? How do, and I'm like, dude, you either have to be rich to go to school or you have to get a special visa because you're a coder, because you're some sort of high talent person. Like, I don't know how hard it is for any person just to just want to migrate here to one of these Western countries. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that called my attention to writing about immigration to begin with is, you know, I'm from the United States and I left, uh, shortly after the, the last Trump election and it was, it was really weird for me to see this like anti-immigrant rhetoric just become popular enough to get him elected in my country. And I can't speak for Canadians, but I think a lot of Americans don't realize how hard it is for the rest of the world to migrate. I mean, in our country, the, the laws in the last two years have gotten stricter and stricter and stricter. And basically, at this point, uh, unless you're going to get a temporary thing, visa for a college, the only way you're getting into America is if you're rich. Or like there's a there's a nice job waiting for you. Like we our our refugee numbers that we accept have gone down quarterly since Trump took office. Like there's huge lines at the border of people who were trying to cross legally, trying to do everything by the rules. And a lot of these um, opponents of immigration, they say, well, all well, those guys, they, it's the illegal immigrants. They need to wait their line. Well, it's like I don't think those people understand that unless you're really well connected or pretty wealthy, you're going to have a very difficult time getting into the United States. I think that's something that I think about daily down here in Latin America. I think so many Americans are not aware of that. Yeah, yeah even as a Canadian, Canadian, dude. Does my microphone sound weird? No, I'm okay. I hear you. Uh, I just like, I went into like dragon voice for a second. I could hear myself sounding like a dragon. I was nice. Like, you should use that effect <laughs> on the show more often. Yeah, I was trying to say that uh, I went, I went on, online to go see what it's like to go to to move to the u.s see if i want to live in california or something where the sun actually shines right and it's impossible for me even i can go in as a tourist for a few for like 90 days right but uh, getting a visa would be so hard unless i got like an employee um a company to sponsor it sure and even then when i was looking at like journalism jobs or even just tech jobs or whatever a lot of ads will say at the bottom we can't sponsor your visa I'm like, right okay, well then you're you're not on the list. Yeah, it's it's a shame. It's a shame that um, a country that is completely made, well, not completely, 99% made up of immigrants has this attitude in the modern area, era. All I can say is I hope that passes. I hope people realize that's a stupid yeah. thing to do. Yeah. I wonder when uh, I was reading, uh, what's this guy's book? Let me just Google it quickly. Or not Google it. It's on my Audible. Oh, Fingerprints of the Gods by... Uh, Graham Hancock. I don't know. Just like talking about, he's uh, he's been on Joe Rogan. He's like one of the guys who has alternative theories about civilizations and, okay. uh, for example, how the pyramids were created. He thinks some crazy civilization that compares to ours was able to build it with advanced tools that we don't even understand and put all these scientific symbols and understandings through metaphors and their art and in the structure all this crazy stuff <laughs> but uh, the general sense i've got from this book is that it's very easy for uh our civilization to suddenly go into chaos collapse mass migrations uh climate change 
whether it's man-made or it's from mother nature deciding this is the time so um i'm trying to get a (laughs) that much sorry go ahead no that much i absolutely agree with and that's something we're going to be seeing more of in the near future and as far as it just being possible for a society to completely collapse i mean just look at venezuela 15 years ago, they were the richest country in South America. They have the largest petroleum reserves on the planet and considerable gold reserves. So, I mean, if it's possible there, it's possible anywhere, right? Exactly. So the general thought I'm getting is like, we're so comfortable here in the West. We think everything's good. Our parents had it pretty good for 50 years with housing, the one job for 60 years, a career and all this stuff. And like suddenly like uh, the tides or the winds could start blowing in a different direction and we're on fire again. Canada could be on fire. The U S like, um, sure. Absolutely. Um, there was even the, you know, that website called zero hedge. Like they were saying like the U S like if we are seeing all these fires across the world in Lebanon, um, throughout south america they're like dude south uh, the u.s could blow up like that suddenly like, sure. people are fed up of, yeah people are fed up of working people are tired people are working three jobs they can't afford a house anymore they can't afford to leave the town they're in or whatever like we're, we're talking about how that's happening in south america but that's starting to happen everywhere the cost of living is just insane sure and if you if you have this american dream in your head like uh good luck right now unless yeah, I mean, as 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 you prefaced, and, and we were talking about when this this conversation started, it's like there's there's a ton more economic opportunity in North America, in both Canada and the United States, uh, a ton more than there is in South America or Central America. But at the same time, like <clears throat> there, like you were just saying, there's some troubling trends towards destabilization. I mean, wealth inequality is rising in both countries, and more so in the states than in Canada. It's it's becoming like can only go so long before you start to see the, dis- the destabilization that we're seeing in South America, right? Right. We're starting to see that, that drumbeat on both sides, whether it's uh, conservatives saying that we're shutting down industries related to petroleum and all these other things, or leftists saying that uh, the rich have too much money. Like both sides of the both side or two drums are beating on each side. Like at some point we could go to some crazy civil war. <clears throat> yeah. One hopes that that doesn't happen, but I, I do agree with you that, that, that chaos is possible anywhere. And I do agree that there are some troubling signs recently, particularly in the United States, I think more so than Canada, but in all the world. And like, we also started off by saying this podcast, like there's just been this resurgence of, of populism around the globe. You see like the, the very far right rising in Europe again, this like anti-immigration rhetoric, Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil. I mean, at this point, Morales is a populist too. Like he decided to run for a fourth term, breaking the constitutional rules. Uh, it's like these, these sort of big personalities are, are really like attracting a lot of attention. It's like, I feel like 10 years ago, there, there was more faith that the global community could sort of unite. And we're seeing like kind of a withdrawal from that idea back to nationalism and localism, like all based around these sort of big personality leaders, right? I mean, like what just happened in Britain, like with, with Brexit, it's, it's really fascinating to watch. And it seems to be a global phenomenon, no? Yeah, it seems like globalism is starting to fail or the promise of globalism isn't giving the majority what they need. Right. That's a better way to put it, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're starting to see, 
even like in the whole Bitcoin movement or <clears throat> online, I follow a lot of like uh, Nassim Taleb's work and a lot of people are calling for more localism, more municipality control, more of a fractured world instead of seeing these massive countries where everybody's going to disagree. Like in Canada, it's massive. And if I don't know if you followed our election, which was on Monday, um, where I'm from in British Columbia on the West Coast, it was uh, a left party that won then in the center of the country the conservatives won and in the east uh, the liberals won which are like a centrist okay so yeah. even canada's fractured right now people across canada are sure. always yelling at each other um some people want a pipeline some people don't want a pipeline so even like this territory that's massive the one of the biggest countries in the world but only has like right. 33 million people yeah, yeah even yeah. we're fighting here even though we're real nice to each other <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's difficult to imagine um, a Canadian Civil War. You can see Montreal splitting off at some point, maybe. But other than that... Montreal, Quebec <laughs> wants to split off. Like, even, they just won a bunch a bunch of seats, like a lot of seats, and there's like a new call for separatists. Oh, of course. Uh, They're always splitting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was just talking about Alberta, how the Conservatives won, and there's like a new... The, I forget what the acronym is, but it's like Brexit, but for Alberta. Okay, sure. That's like hilarious. Wexit or something. Like, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Sometimes I think like maybe if I get off Twitter, the world won't be on fire. You know, I I've think actually that... I've blocked my... I've blocked my phone before, dude. Yeah. For like a month and I just have no access to the internet. And I'm like, oh, wow, the... It's it's really beautiful here where I live too. So I'm just like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Going for these hikes and like I'm like, wow, everything's actually fine. Like life is good and all this. And then I go back on Twitter, especially when I was in trying to be a journalist. I was reading so much news that I was sure. like, fuck, my head hurts, dude. Yeah, I get you on that. What's your sense on the? What's your sense on like? No, the, I agree. Do you ever I, take a, I, I think a that detox? I I was thinking about this today, man. Actually, like uh, I've been a little stressed about this visa issue and trying to find the next job in, in Colombia. So now I'm just like. You know, walking around, I don't have any real problems. I'm kind of stressed out, right? And I'm just like, like, um, obsessively looking at Twitter. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why do I need to be like looking at like pictures of riots right now when I'm feeling like stressed out? Like, and I just went and like, you know, had a cat, sat at a cafe and like just had a coffee and like read a book and like just didn't think about the news for a while. And yeah, I think that's really important. And like, there's, it's a question that a lot of, a lot of people that I run into uh, bring up with me. And maybe maybe I'd like to ask it to you as well. It's like, do you think there really is more conflict in the world? Or do you think that just because communication is so instant and global now, that it just seems like there's a lot more? Because, you know, like 50 years ago, people would read the paper, right? And you have like a half an hour to read the paper. And there's no way it can cover everything that Twitter covers, right? But it's like, is the world more chaotic? Or do we just hear the, the, the nitty gritty details faster and more often? What do you think? I want to say that specifically, like the last two weeks have been very chaotic because there's a bunch of protests all over. Sure, the world. well, that's that's indisputable. You're right. Yes. I don't know if you could put up a chart and we could look at year by year, like how many protests there are at the same time in different countries. Maybe analytically, you could say that there's been more active periods of time, but uh, for sure, like I unfollowed a lot of news websites for fun recently, and I'm. I don't know, man. Twitter is a weird addiction. It is. I stopped following. I stopped following a bunch of news websites because I was just tired of reading a bunch of news that I didn't care about. Sure. But then I started following a bunch of aggressive people, and I could kind of see how their aggressive tweeting started to get into my brain, and I started to think similarly. Okay. So I'm like, 
Sometimes I'm like, I need to get off of Twitter, maybe keep it only on my laptop and not use it when I'm out in the real world. Sure, that's a good idea. I definitely know the effects because this, this, I want to say in August, I did like, I child blocked my phone, which means I put a password on it and I couldn't download apps. Okay. I couldn't, uh, so I basically blocked all infinite content from my phone. And I would be at work and I generally, I felt way calmer. I was talking to people I was more focused on what people were saying to me. I wasn't glancing at my phone all the time. Yeah, right. I still, I still kept like music and I kept audiobook stuff that you have to focus on more so than sure. browsing randomly. And lately I'm thinking I might try it again because I can feel my brain getting a little wild sometimes when I'm on Twitter. But Twitter is an amazing tool to meet people. Like I would, probably wouldn't be talking to you right now without it. No, it's certainly not. DMing people, yeah, all it, these conversations that I start with people. Yeah, it's, 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 so it's incredibly useful in journalism as well. I mean, people reach out to me with material that they, they would like the world to know about photos, videos. I've, I wouldn't have had that interview. I wasn't an interview. I wouldn't have gone out for drinks with a reporter from Teletory last night if it wasn't for Twitter. And that was a really cool experience. Right. There's, I've definitely met a lot of people that I, I never, ever would have run into if it weren't for this like hyper-connected, hyper-frenetic and a little bit uh, aggressive community. Right. <laughs> Right. So once I looked up, because uh, on Facebook right now, I have the feed completely blocked just so I can use Facebook Messenger. Sure. And I'll, I'll see notifications, but the feed is off. So people the other day were complaining to me like, oh, man, I hate going on Facebook because I see all these posts from people I knew in the past writing all these crazy things, yeah. arguing over politics and whatever. And I'm like, dude, I never see that. <laughs> but uh, Twitter, I haven't figured out how to block the feed. But at the same time, then it's hard to start conversations or know new people who I can talk to yeah comment for sure reach out to so so I don't know what the balance is I don't know how you fix the algorithm but I think it would be beneficial for you to pick a few days and just get off completely and just uh recenter you know I think you're right back I think you're totally right I I have been playing with that idea and I think that you've just finally uh pushed that out of experimentation into implementation mode yeah, it's, it's good for your sanity. Right. Because when I was in Colombia following the news, dude, sometimes I was like, the world, Colombia is on fire. The paramilitary <laughs> everybody. The government's still being a dick. Yeah. All these drug groups in Eastern Colombia are fighting all the time. I'm just like, fuck, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely relate to that. Yeah, that's. And then you go outside and people are still living their lives. It's a bit chaotic, but people aren't fucking blasting each other. <laughs> There's a mass murder anymore. Like, no, just, no, 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 no. The, the vast absolutely that's one the vast majority of the vast majority of Colombia is 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 very safe yeah there are obviously chunks of the country that are big exceptions but the vast majority of it is very safe uh how long were you in venezuela not long in in, in san antonio i, I just wanted to know what it's a day like i, I went there with you know, a, a venezuelan who had a grandmother that lived in san antonio and we stayed at her house he was like, I don't think that you as an American, especially a white guy, should be like out at night trying to drink in one of the bars. He's like, so we're just going to stay at my grandma's house. Um, so I didn't really see like what the nightlife was like in San Antonio. My, my, the guy that I was with, a Colombian, uh, who had a Venezuelan uh, mother, um, basically prohibited me from doing that. <laughs> Which I guess, Why, is, this is what it- I guess it's understandable. He was just worried about me getting robbed or kidnapped or something. Exactly. This yeah. is what I was trying to get at. That uh, even when I was just about to, last year I was toying around with going to Mexico for a while, and every Mexican I spoke to that hadn't been back to Mexico in years and grew up in Canada or has been living here in Canada, they were like, "Don't go there. It's so dangerous. You can't walk around at night." 
I talk to local Mexicans who are like living here for a little bit and then they go back. They're like, no, it's completely different. Or foreigners. I met so many backpackers who backpacked across Mexico. They're like, it's okay. So that's what I wanted to know. Like, I want to speak to somebody who's been in Venezuela for a while and tell me like what the day to day life is like there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the to, one. Yeah. It's easy to read the news. It's easy to read all these foreigners or Venezuelans abroad who are talking shit about how difficult life is there. I just want to know from a person who's still living. Maybe I should call my fucking grandma or my family. Yeah. Like, what is a? I've talked. What to, is the day to day like? I've talked to a lot of people that, and I, I have some. Um, colleagues that still work in Venezuela, specifically in Caracas. And what a lot of people that I've talked to is if you live in the West, uh, there's, there's no nightlife. Like there's no light usually at night. Um, the, the electricity during the day is three to four hours in the West, um, really strict rationing for water as well. So there, there outside of the cities, there's no law. So though that part, of, of the Western border and the areas around there, it's like Mad Max, but life in Caracas and Valencia is, is relatively normal. Um, yeah, there are some shortages. The economy is dollarized and it's expensive if you're Venezuelan to survive. Very. They say something like 80% of the uh, salaries of Venezuelans now come from remittances. Uh, but, you know, aside from, my friend that lives in Caracas, who I talk to a lot, one of the reporters there for Caracas Chronicles, tells me that uh, on Saturday, like, you can, you can go spend probably too much money for a beer somewhere. But mostly what people do is have parties in their houses. Um, that life is more or less normal. But that's the capital. That's where the government can still kind of maintain order to a degree. Uh, there's less acute shortages. When they do have blackouts in Caracas, it's kind of news, right? So... Unlike Maricabo, Maricabo and Merida, which have been doing ongoing blackouts for six, seven months, and no one's even talking about that anymore because it's so normal. But I think it just depends where you are in Venezuela. Right. That's like uh, people keep asking me, oh, Frank, where are you going to travel to next? And I'm like, if I could, I would go back home to Venezuela. Right. But that's the one place I would pack my bags immediately and go if I knew I could go. And I, I would go in an instant. If I could get uh, a real visa and know that seven wasn't going to arrest me. <laughs> I, I would yeah. absolutely, I would absolutely go in an instant. Yeah. I have some friends that I, we have come to Columbia. They're journalists for stories and then gone back who live in Caracas. So I, I would love to go buy them a beer see what their life is like. Talk to them in person. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Someday I hope. All right. <laughs> awesome, but- dude. I think we can, Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I probably I'm probably gonna have to get going here though. Yeah, let's uh, wrap her up. Um, where c- can people find you on the internet if they want to read your stuff? Uh, the easiest thing is just murosinvisibles.com. That's the the website. You can find my Twitter there. I have a Medium publication also called Muros Invisibles. Um, on Twitter, it's Invisibles Muros. But the, yeah, it's all it's all based around the website. So if you just go to www.murosinvisibles.com. That's probably the, the the main gateway, I guess. Yeah, I'll link to it in the description too. So if people cool. don't know how to spell that because it's in Espanol. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks, man. It's really cool, a pleasure. Awesome, dude. It was really a pleasure to finally put a voice to the name. Yeah, I will uh, maybe see you in Colombia at some point. I hope uh, so. Planning a return, hopefully. 
and I'll keep following you on Twitter and commenting on it. So Great. We'll be in I'll touch. See you. I'll see you. I'll see you on our addiction app. Yeah. Go take right? a break from totally. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, totally. Go I'm going to I'm gonna download some of your podcasts. Download some of your podcasts and take a break from Twitter. It's like a good move. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's some good ones there. If you want to do the, the Bitcoin one was good. I did one yeah, with yeah. the New York Times journalist. Oh, There's cool. Some good stuff. There. That's great, man. Yeah, I'll take a look. Well, thanks, man. And have a good night. And thanks for having me. You too. Yep. See you around. Talk soon, buddy.